0: So when Megan and I first got married, I guess we were like most married couples are. We, essentially, all of our furniture was hand-me-downs, right? Like we, we had the kind of furniture where you have to position the blankets just right on the furniture to cover up the holes. You know what I'm talking about? You lay it over the armrest right here. You put it over the back of the couch right here. That way, hopefully, hopefully nobody will notice the big gaping holes that you have. Uh, in your furniture but we we did have one nice chair we had one nice chair we had a nice recliner that we had went And when Megan got her first paycheck, I remember we went and we bought us a couch and we bought us a recliner. And so the recliner was literally the most expensive and nicest piece of furniture that we own. And and like in retrospect, you remember like when you bought it, you thought, I've arrived. Like this is the big time. This is what life's about. You know, like in retrospect, it really wasn't that nice of a recliner. (laughs) It really wasn't that great. But for us at the time, man, it was like the first non-hand-me-down, halfway decent piece of furniture that we own. And surprise surprise we were moving of course and i was at home one day on a friday and everybody else was at work and i had help that was coming that afternoon but i was less than patient and so what i decided i was going to do i thought i can get that chair in that trailer we had a trailer outside that we were borrow, we had borrowed to help us move, and I thought I can get this chair out in that uh, out in that trailer. And so I just start manhandling. Now this is our only decent piece of furniture, right? And I just start manhandling this chair to the best. And I get it out the door, and I and I get it down the driveway. And I'm just about to have to. I lift it up so I can get it into the back of the trailer. And when I lift it up, I lose my grip on it, and it tumbles down onto the pavement, and it just shreds the entire side. Of that chair, And of course now we needed a new blanket for a new chair, right? And so I, I personally, because of my impatience, destroyed our only decent piece of furniture that we owned because I thought, I thought, I can handle this by myself. I think that is kind of a glimpse of so much of what we see in our society today. We live in a radically individualistic age. What I mean by that is we live in a time in which I define what is moral or unmoral for myself. I will build my life the way that I want to, regardless of who my parents are, regardless of what the rest of the world is doing, regardless of how it affects my children, I'm going to build my life the way that I want to build it. I'm going to define my own spirituality. I'm going to define my own belief system. I'm going to define my own priorities. I'm going to build my life, myself, my way, in my name. Right? And here's what I'm afraid is happening. We have made living an individualistic endeavor, and we have forsaken the community experience. We have forsaken the importance of having having a tribe of people around us, a tribe of people that can help us lift up the chair, so to speak. And so we take it, we try to bear the weight of our own lives. We try to bear the weight of our own struggles. We try to bear the weight of our own decisions. We try to bear the weight of our own wisdom, bear the weight of our own spirituality, of our own ethics, of our own morality. And it's like me trying to, pick that nice chair up and lift it into the trailer, we lose our grip. We lose our grip and our lives come crashing down. And because we have lived these individualistic lives, there is nobody around us that is close enough to help keep us from falling all the way to the ground. There's nobody around us that can help pick us up when we fall down. In fact, I think we've seen this kind of thinking infiltrate the church. We've seen this kind of thinking infiltrate the church. It's very common for us to come to now to Jesus and to believe that the only thing that matters is who I believe Jesus is and my personal walk with Jesus, that I, I really have no responsibility for your walk with Jesus or and you don't have any responsibility certainly of my walk with Jesus. All that matters is that I love Jesus and that Jesus loves me and that I have experienced forgiveness and that I have called on the name of Jesus. And if I am a part of the community, great. If I am not a part of the community, great all of that is rather inconsequential and that's why I think that for our day and age in fact for, for our day and age in the church for Christians what the Bible actually teaches is a radical teaching do you know what the New Testament teaches us it teaches us that Jesus didn't primarily come to save individuals whoa right for, for a lot of us, that's all we've heard is that Jesus came for you. He came for you. He came for you. And, and y'all, Jesus does save you. And Jesus does save individuals. But if you listen to the words that Jesus speaks, if you listen to the words of the apostles, Jesus does not primarily come for you, for in, you as the individual. No, Jesus primarily came not to save individuals, but to save a church. Jesus primarily came not just so that you could have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus came that he might build a kingdom of people, that you might be living stones, him, him as the chief cornerstone, and all of the other stones being built so that a whole kingdom of people are built, drawn out of this world and drawn to him to advance the name of Jesus. That is from the beginning. In the very definition of the mission of Jesus, this is a community project, y'all. This is a community project. Remember what he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16? He said, Peter makes a confession and he identifies that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they had long awaited for. And what does Jesus say? On this rock, or on this confession, I will build my individuals. I will save people here and there. No, he says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here's here's what I want you to see. To, To be saved by Christ is to be brought into the church. And to be brought into the church is to bear responsibility to each other. It's to bear a responsibility to each other as the family of God, as the the co-laborers, as the co-heirs of Christ. That the whole intention of the gospel was to bring us to Christ and in bringing us to Christ to bring us together so that we are bound together in a spiritual way in which the world cannot fathom or understand. Remember what we said last week about families, that if there is anything that describes a family, it is the word responsibility. It is the word responsibility. And so last week, we we looked at that and we saw a specific responsibility, the responsibility to love one another in a way that, that shows God's love to each other, to follow after the pattern of love that God has established, that we might be able to demonstrate, to display that same kind of love in our relationships with one another so that the world would see us and recognize us as disciples and that's what we've said that the vision of Iron City Baptist Church is to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth but but looking at the Acts 4 passage that we started with as we started in that, that, culminating, uh, that culminating step of go what we said is, is that we could rephrase that to say that it is the vision of Iron City Baptist Church the mission of Iron City Baptist Church to raise up a generation of believers that the world recognizes as having been with Jesus and one of the ways that the world recognizes us as having been with is in the way that we love each other. But what I want us to see as we look at that discipleship process, that process that we've put into place that we might attain, the vision that we've set before us, is last week we saw connection. The next step is disciple. And what I want you to understand is that connect, our connection with one another is never enough in and of itself. Our connection with one another is always headed somewhere. Our connection with one another, our friendships with each other, our, our brotherhood, our sisterhood, our love for each other is always for the intention of discipling each other of discipling each other, of helping one another grow in the faith, of spurring one another on to good works, of, of iron sharpening iron so one man sharpens another, that, that our connection with each other is intended to, to bring into our lives a responsibility to one another that we would help each other take the next steps of faith along the way. Because I don't know about you, but left alone, I'll just rot and die, Right? Left alone, I'll just throw on another season of the crown and waste away my day. But, 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 if I have brothers beside me, if I have sisters beside me, and they're challenging me forward, and I'm seeing what God is doing in their lives, that calls me forward. That calls me forward. And so really what we're seeing is we're seeing what it looks like to love one another in the real world as the church of Christ And we saw last week that begins with our connection, that we are responsible to show one another God's love. And this week I want us to take the next step and I want us to see two more responsibilities that we have that flow out of that connection. And that next one is that we're responsible to contribute to one another's peace. We're responsible to contribute to one another's peace. That is, once love has bound us together, now we have a responsibility to each other to begin contributing some things to one another's lives, bringing some realities to bear in each other's lives. Look at what it says in verse 15. There it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, the word... Peace there is an interesting word. It's used throughout the New Testament, but it's used in a in a few different ways. That in fact I think we could summarize that the way peace is used in the New Testament in, in three different ways. That first of all, it's peace with God. Romans chapter five says that we were born as enemies of God that because of our sinfulness because of our rebellion against God because of our our desire to live life our own way and go our own way that that we have brought enmity between us and God with our sin nature that his holy wrath is owed to our sinful rebellion and so there is this 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 chasm this gap between us and what christ does is christ overcomes that gap he pardons our sin he takes it upon himself and then he gives us peace peace with god in fact the word peace finds its most literal meaning in the word treaty that, that essentially in christ what we have is we have a treaty with the almighty we who are sinful are now able to exist with access and joy and even even childhood in the kingdom that God Himself is establishing because God has brought us into that kingdom by the treaty of Christ. Okay, so so that is the the. Big picture reality, when we think about peace, what we're thinking about is first and foremost, primarily the peace that Christ has given us with God. But that peace with God is intended to find its way into our everyday life. That we are to live our lives in alignment with that peace so that now that peace begins to transform all the other areas of our life. And so Philippians 4 says, it's not just about peace with God, it's about peace within. It's about peace within, right? Uh, Paul says in the Philippians, that, that we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding, doesn't he? he? He says, in fact, he said that it's a peace that surpasses all understanding, that, that guards your heart. It protects your heart. It, it, it's, a, it's a peace of the, of the spirit. It's a, a peace of, of the conscience, you might even think. This is something that is sorely missing in our day, but it is something that Christ has availed, that, that it is not just that we have peace with God, but through the holy spirit as a gift we have peace from god that god has given us peace that abides within us that a, a peace that that lives within us a peace that can be applied to us a peace that we can enjoy the word peace here is uh, it encapsulates the same concept of shalom that you get the Hebrew word shalom that we get in the old testament this this total well-being of the spirit so you, you might understand peace here as being a tranquility of the of the soul of, of rest of the spirit. It's, your, your mind isn't racing, your heart isn't racing, you're, you're unconcerned and unworried. You're, you're unhurried. You're, it's unnecessary that, that you always feel overwhelmed. No, instead you have the opposite of those things. You have you have peace, you have you have you have rest, you have tranquility, right? So I have peace with God. This peace, peace that Uh, that is the result of the treaty that we have in Christ. And then I have peace from God within. And then the next way that I think we see it in the New Testament is we have peace with each other. Peace with each other. The New Testament is very, very concerned that the church gets along with each other. That that the the church comes together as the different parts of one body and functions together in a way that is meaningful and, and powerful and effective. That, that one of the reasons that God has given us peace with him through Christ and that he has, he has given us peace within is that we might contribute to one another's peace in a way because we ourselves are people of peace. Now, what does he mean, though, when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? Rule in your hearts. Because this is the difference maker in the, in the verse. Okay, it's one thing for us to talk about concepts of peace. All of us intellectually understand concepts of peace, what peace is, what peace must be like. But the truth is, is that very few of us experience peace. Very few of us know what it's like to actually live with with peace in your spirit, with with peace in your relationships with one another. And I think that's where the word rule comes in. The word rule here uh, means umpire or referee. That it was it was a word that was used in ancient by the ancient Greeks in their their sporting occasions and so the idea here the idea here is that you have someone who sets the parameters of the game. You have someone who establishes the rules that everybody else is going to play by. And when somebody goes out of alignment with those parameters, when someone steps outside of the boundaries of that match, then the umpire blows this whistle, right? The the umpire calls a foul, and the purpose of that foul is to bring you back into alignment with everyone else, to bring you back within the parameters that the that the game has 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 played, so that all of us are now on the same page. Again, so that all of us are operating by the same system once again. And so, so here's the concept. Okay, so we have peace with God. That cannot be disrupted. That cannot be disrupted. That, that peace is as solid and as secure as Christ himself. And so the peace that we have with God, it, 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 will, never be, it will never go away. It will never be eliminated. It will never be more it will never be less. God in Christ sees us in the same way that he sees Jesus if we have repented of our sins, if we have placed our faith in Christ. But but in those other two categories that flow out of our peace with God, our peace within, our peace with one another, those pieces can be disrupted. That's a peace that can be disrupted. In other words, in other words, when in our lives we break we don't live in alignment With the God who has saved us, with our pardon, with the Lord, whenever we step outside of his will, whenever we step outside of his plans, whenever we step outside of his design, well now the peace that I have within that flows from the pardon that I have with him is disrupted. Now the peace that I have in my relationships with you all, now that's disrupted. In other words, God has designed us so that our conscience lets us know that we are outside of the parameters of God's will. God has designed our conscience so that we can have an awareness that when we get out of alignment with one another, when we sin against each other, when we disobey the Lord, when we go our own way and try to individualize our life and decide what is moral and what is immoral, when we we try to justify the Bible so that the Bible now fits our lifestyle rather than fitting our lifestyle to the Bible, all of a sudden our conscience begins to call foul on us and calling foul on us, it disrupts our peace so that now we know something's not right. So that now we know we need to come back within the parameters that God has sought. So that now we know there, need, there is a place for repentance in our lives because the Lord has called, called attention to the brokenness that's in our lives. But do you know what the opposite of being ruled by peace is? The opposite is being ruled by chaos, isn't it? The, the opposite of being ruled by peace is being ruled by chaos. A, a way for us to think about what it would mean to be ruled by chaos would mean it's to be ruled by your appetites and by your anxieties. Th- those things are unpredictable. Th- th- those things are erratic. Those things are Individual. Those things can be selfish or they can be good. Those things can be corrupt or those things can be, can be justified. But when you live by your anxieties and you live by your appetites, you live in a way that is out of alignment with the Lord. You live by something that will change your, your approach to living and your, your desires and your hungers every single day. And this is what so many Christians do. This is what so many Christians do. We, we get out of alignment in the will of God. And we may do this early on in our faith. And, and then there's no one around us. We don't have a community of people around us that can hold us accountable and bring us back into alignment. And so we have this, what feels like a gaping hole in our soul because now that peace within has been disrupted. That peace between us and the Lord is no longer there. And so what do we do? Well, we're anxious We're anxious. And so now we try to make other people around us happy so that we can get some sense of approval. Now we try to portray a polished plastic version of ourselves on social media so that we can get likes and approval, right? Now we begin to, to... sit and worry and think through all of the worst case scenarios because now I have to figure out what's wrong with me. I have to respond to all of those different thoughts that I have, all of those different fears that I have, all of those different concerns that I have because I need whatever is broken in me. I need this disruption in my peace to be resolved. Or, or we try it a different way. We try to appease all of our appetites. We try to look for all of the right relationships we try to throw ourselves into sexual pleasures. We try to throw ourselves toward food or numbing ourselves with the television. We, we try to get, we get another job so we can make a little bit more money and buy a few more things. We do side hustles. We, we go. We start working out at the gym, so that all of a sudden, maybe now we can find some sense of purpose and some sense of identity that's new. And what is but both of these things are trying to resolve the same reality. Both of these things are trying to resolve the same reality. They're trying to bring calm to the chaos that's now within. Calm to the chaos that's now within. But ironically, when you seek to fix your own disruption of peace by Anx- by, appeasing, by, by overcoming your anxieties by appeasing your appetites what you actually do is move even further outside of the design of God you actually move further away from the source of your original peace now you're saying more and more I can fix me I can overcome these things I can, I can do all of this work on my own and all of the time it is the Lord calling you to forsake your anxieties and come and push your confidence in him It's the Lord calling you to forsake your appetites and find the fullness of your satisfaction in Him. It's to bring you back into alignment with the will of God that now the peace that comes within, the peace that is from God as a gift might be restored to you. Now, here's where I I think this flows into discipleship, okay? We're on that second step of our discipleship process, right? Connect, disciple, go. And when we talk about discipleship, here's what, we, what I mean by that. We, we defined connection for you last week. When I talk about discipleship, this is what I mean. It's intentionally entering someone's life that they may know Jesus, follow Jesus, and obey Jesus. It's intentionally entering someone's life that they may know Jesus, follow Jesus, and obey Jesus. Here's where I see this in chapter 15. First off, the word your here, it's hard to tell when in the translation. This is a plural your. So here, here's a way for us to think. Of it. This is y'all, okay? <laughs> Let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts. That's what he's saying there. This is a, a community project from the beginning. To which indeed you were called into one body. Okay, so, so in Paul's mind here as we talk about uh, peace, what we see is that it's always intended to be a community project. There's a oneness, it's y'all's hearts, it's one body. You were called, so in other words, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to each other, to enter into one another's lives. Does that language sound familiar? To enter into one another's lives, to help contend for one another's peace. You have a responsibility to, to be a part of each other's community, to be invited in, to have breakfast with each other, to have lunch with each other, to, to enjoy fellowship with each other, to build friendships with one another, to do things together, to worship together. You have a responsibility in all of these things to, to be bound together that you might now contribute the peace of each other. That, that this peace with God and this peace within is supposed to lead to a unity or a oneness with each other. Here, here's what we need in Iron City. Here's what we need in Iron City. What we need are some people who are willing to set aside time in their lives to inconvenience themselves that other people might stop being ruled by chaos. What we need is we need some committed Christians who, say, who, who take the call of Jesus seriously to, be, to make disciples of all nations that will intentionally enter into the lives of each other so that you can set an example of what it means not to give in to your anxieties, not to give in to your appetites, but instead to allow your conscience to call foul and bring you back in alignment with the peace of God. In, in other words, we need some of you to live and to show what it looks like to repent from sin. We we need you to, to show what it looks like to wrestle with decisions. We need for you to show what it looks like for a man or a woman of God to get outside of the will of God, but then to repent and reconcile and be brought back into the will of God. We need you to enter into people's lives and then to be the wisdom in their life to help show them that they might do the same way. In his mind here, I think what Paul is primarily thinking about is the ways that we disrupt the peace among us. That, In other words, that what happens is we come and we, ca- we might be short with one another one day or we, we might be brisk with each other or we might be kind of prickly in our relationships and then all of a sudden you get home and what, what happens? It comes into your mind, doesn't it? It comes into your mind. What is that? It's the disruption of your peace. It's the conscience calling foul. It's the conscience calling foul. And so what is it calling for you to do that, that peace might be restored? It's calling for you to leave your offering at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. In other words, it's to go to John or to Keith or to Adriana and it's to say those words that are so impossible for us to say, "I'm sorry." I'm sorry. You know, I bet I bet there are marriages here this morning that could be healed with the words, "I'm sorry." I bet there are, are, are mission projects that could get accomplished this morning with the words, I'm sorry. But what do we typically do? We typically double down on our anxieties. We justify ourselves. We move on from it. And we say, I, I, they I just have to understand. They'll have to get it. Rather than setting an example of repentance and reconciliation. Y'all, that's the kind of disciple makers that we need. We need the kind of disciple makers at Iron City Baptist Church that will look the group of people, the individuals that they're investing their lives in when they have sinned against them or when they have set a poor example for them or when they have spoken coarsely with them and look back at them and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That The, the unity of the church is founded upon the gospel and the gospel is founded upon the principles of repentance and reconciliation that we are to be guided in our hearts by this concept of repenting and reconciling. Are you willing to be an authentic, real life, real person, disciple maker that enters into the lives of other people to show them how the rule of peace can take over their lives rather than the rule of chaos? It brings us to the uh, the final responsibility that I want us to see this morning. And that is that we're responsible to strengthen one another's faith. We're responsible to strengthen one another's faith. Look what he says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you originally. I want you to, I want to point out things like this when we see them occasionally. What did we just talk about? What did Paul just talk about? I want you to see that he's he, in his mind, he's building on what he just said. He just talked about the peace of Christ. He said it explicitly in that way. And now he goes in verse 16. He hasn't moved on from the thought. He's building on the thought because now he doesn't say the peace of Christ. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These things are feeding one another in the mind of Christ. In other words, it is the gospel that has brought you together. It is the message, it is the confession of faith that has brought you together as the church. That's what brought you together originally, and now that's what's supposed to hold you together. That the community of faith is to be built upon the Word. We are a community of disciples learning the words of Christ, seeking to obey the words of Christ, seeking to follow the words of Christ, and that's why Thomas Watson the Puritan writer, he says this, he says that the word of God is like discovering a gold mine, and as the believer what our responsibility is, is to go in the midst of this grand mine, and all of these gems, and all of these rubies, and all of this treasure, and to try to collect as many of them as we can, and that's the idea here, that in abundance in wealth, in prosperity, we are prospering not necessarily in our health, we are prospering not necessarily in our wealth, but by goodness, my We are prospering in the word of God. The word of God is at the center of our fellowship. It goes back to what we talked about last week, right? That our unity can't be built around our preferences. Our unity can't be built around our personalities. It can't be built around our style of worship or our style of preaching. It can't be built around what our sanctuary is or what our sanctuary isn't. It can't be built around all of these different methods of ministry. Our, Our fellowship has to be built and founded upon the gospel upon the word of Christ. That's why we don't just gather, we gather to hear the word. That, that's why in our groups, our groups, we want them to be connection-based groups. But we want to connect through the word. Because that is where the power is. That's, what super, that's what's supernatural. And in fact, he gives us three different ways that it, uh, three different realities of what happens in the life of the church when it when the word of God dwells richly or the word of Christ or the word about Christ it could be translated dwells richly among us. He says next that it's teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the difference between teaching and admonishing, teaching is instruction. It's informing. Admonishing is warning. It's, it's, it's saying it with, with urgency. It's, it's saying it that, that you're, you're on the tips of your toes. You're, you're waving your arms and you're saying, no, 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 don't go that way. Don't go that way. And he says that we have in this a responsibility to what? To one another, to one another. Again, there's a responsibility, not an option. <laughs> a responsibility, not an option. In other words, that you are to commit yourselves to being students of God's word. You are to commit yourselves to to going as deeply and gathering as much of the treasure as you can gather. You are to commit yourself to double yourself down, that you can know and understand the gospel as fully as one is able to know and to understand the gospel. But you are to do it not just so that you know more about Jesus, but so that you can now contribute to the faith of someone else. So that you can make that deposit in the life of another believer. So that you can help feed the peace that's in their life. So that you can help call forward the passion to the things of God. That you are, in other words, not just the pastor, not just the preacher, not just the body of elders. But the entire congregation are to be ministers of the word. Ministers of the word. That all of us collectively have a responsibility to preach the word in season and out of season. To know the word. Th- think about the word wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge, isn't it? Applied knowledge. It's knowing something, but knowing something's not enough. It's not just knowing it, it's applying it so that it fits into your life. It's, it's knowing the right thing to do, and it's doing the right thing. It's knowing the right processes to follow and it's doing the right processes. And what we need in discipleship, brothers and sisters, is we need people who are a a step ahead to come into the lives of other believers and to help them grow in their knowledge of Christ and to apply wisdom in all wisdom in their lives. I think there's two groups specifically that the New Testament has in mind. I think first of all, it's those of you who are a step ahead in maturity. A step ahead in spiritual maturity. Look, there there is no shame about where you are. There's no shame about where you are. The shame is is if you stay there. There, There's no shame. Whether you're a spiritual infant, maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe you've never come into a place in your life in which you've given all of your life to Christ. Come this morning. There's no shame in where you are so long as you don't stay there. Repent of your sin and come to Christ. Maybe you're a spiritual infant. Maybe you're a spiritual child. Maybe you're a spiritual adolescent. Or maybe you're a spiritual parent. But wherever you are, there's no shame in that place, so long as you don't stay still where you are. And so, in the New Testament, you think I think about what Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy chapter two, uh, verse two. He says that 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 Timothy has been given the deposit by Paul, and now it's Timothy's responsibility to entrust that responsible uh, that. Word to other faithful uh, men who will then go and, and, de- and deposit that in other faithful men. So there's this, this transition, this, this multiplication that's happening in the life of the church. And that's what it's supposed to look like. If you're a step ahead, you have a responsibility to bring those behind you to where you are. You're going to keep moving forward. The, the word of Christ is going to continue dwelling richly in you. You're going to continue to feed the peace that's within. But, but, but you're going to look to a mother that's a, that's a step behind you, and you're going to call her forward. You're going to look to a young dad who's a, a step behind you, and you're going to call him forward. You're going to look to someone who hasn't been able to have the, the time of study or hasn't had the experiences of Christ that you've had, and you're going to call them forward. I think the other group of people is not just the spiritually mature that have a, a sp- particular responsibility, but I think it's the, those who are older in age have a particular responsibility. I think about Titus chapter 2. you know what would be the best case scenario for Iron City Baptist Church? The best case scenario is if the oldest folks in our church were the godliest folks in our church. That's the best case scenario. Th- that's how it's intended in the New Testament church that the the oldest folks in the church would not be those that are content to rest on their laurels and float away to heaven to be with Jesus, but that they would be the kind that would double down in their kindness and double down in their burden and double down in their passion and double down in their concern and double down with their life experiences and their maturity in the faith that they would be the most patient that we have and and the most uh, devoted to the mission that we have and they would be the most devoted to the discipleship process that we have, they would be the most devoted to love that we would have and they would be the kind of folks that are inviting the younger folks over to their house to invest in them, the kind that the older ladies are taking the younger moms out and having coffee with them, and the younger older dads taking the younger dads out fishing and playing golf and spending time with them so that they can see what it looks like to, to have the word applied to your life not taught to them from a preacher, okay, not just spoken from a platform, but lived out in everyday living. Y'all, yeah, we need that here. We need that here. We need you intentionally living on mission. I'm not calling you to be a scholar of the word. That's not what I'm calling you to be. I'm not calling you to be a charismatic personality. I'm not calling you to be a great public speaker. What I'm calling you to be is to be a committed Christian and to be that in the life of other people. Be a committed Christian in the life of someone who's not where you are and to call them forward. So that's what he said. We bear a responsibility. It's not an option. It's not something that we might get around to. It's not something for the spiritually elite. All of us bear a responsibility to one another to teach and admonish in the word. There's another one thing that he says. Another way that we disciple each other is in singing. In singing. Now this is strange, right? We don't often think about singing in context of discipleship or or, or maybe another way to say it, singing in the context of teaching. But think about what he's talking about here. Okay, so on this side, on one side we have teaching and admonishing and then on the other side we have with thankfulness. You know what singing is? Singing singing is where teaching meets testimony. Singing is where teaching meets testimony. It's where you take the truth of what God has said and the truth of what God has seen and you f- bring it and you funnel it through your heart so that now it's filled with passion and it's filled with zeal and you say, these words can't be spoken. These words can't just be written. These words must be sang because they are the song of my heart. I have heard. It's, it's to say what Job has said, right? Before I knew about you but now my eyes have seen the truth and it's to bring these things together in a collective experience singing by the way is not just about you and god it's not this individualistic experience right it's to sing corporately It's to sing collectively in fact paul says this in ephesians chapter 5 he says not just to sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs he says to address one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs that we are, in other words, supposed to sing to each other in a way that bears witness to the glory of Christ so that, each, so that each of us have our faith strengthened, so that each of us have our faith called forward, so that each of us grow in the mercies that God has allowed for us to do. As I thought about this for our church, I thought about, there are two Sundays that stand out in my mind as the loudest singing I have ever heard at Iron City Baptist Church. Two Sundays. Do you know what they were? Probably not what you would expect. They were when Bobby Wilkins passed away and when Avery Moore passed away. When we lost this stalwart in the church and when we said goodbye to this beautiful little girl, those Sundays, those Sundays, the singing was so loud. Nobody was concerned with their image, nobody was concerned with what others thought about their voice, nobody was wrapped up in where they were headed for lunch. On those Sundays, you know what it was? It was truth meeting testimony, being declared through our lips. Because when we see grieving moms and dads, when we see a grieving church and they are declaring the glories of Christ, when they are declaring the sovereignty of God, when they are declaring the grace and the mercy in the eyes of lost, that's teaching us something, isn't it? That's teaching us something. That's teaching us that God can be trusted no matter what you are facing. It is the each other in the praise of God. And so your singing or your lack thereof is instructing your brothers and sisters of the passion of the faith, of the realness of the faith, of the trustworthiness of the faith. Are our kids watching our daddies, are they seeing them sing? Are they seeing them sing? Because man, discipleship is as much caught as it is taught. And when you're around a man of God who they know lives a manly life, and bears his responsibilities, and works hard, and he comes into the church and he declares with all of his voice that Jesus is his Savior and that he knows Christ and he loves Christ and he's unashamed of Christ and he wants his church to know that he knows Christ... And to know that he's unashamed of Christ, there's power in that, man. There's power in that. Oh, I dream of us being a singing church because the word of Christ dwells richly within us. The final way that we see is that he says there in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him basically the exact same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is, it is to decide and to reconcile that Jesus's name is greater than your life. It is to say God I don't bring to you mere words I don't bring to you mere actions I don't I don't bring to you a couple of routines and rituals that I do over the course of the, of the week I don't bring to you Sunday morning worship and keep everything else for myself no I lay my life on the cross I don't bring an animal to be sacrificed I don't bring someone else to have to bear my burdens no having followed in the image of Jesus I lay my own life down on the cross and I say Jesus wherever you want me to go I'll go whoever you want me to be I'll be whatever you want me to do I'll do you call I will go because I have bore my life under the weight of the gospel so that now I can live in being ruled by peace we need disciple makers that are all in we need disciple makers that are all in we need to say enough with people enough with ourselves having one foot in the world and another foot in the cross We need to lay our bodies down. Think about Joyce, Joyce Vaughn. If there has ever been a person that I've known that offered themselves to the Lord, it was her. I told the story in the, the video that I was able to do for her funeral. Right when COVID started last March, you know Joyce, Joyce wasn't gonna sit by and just let it go. And so she had heard about this new idea about people needing masks and she knew that masks were gonna be an urgent need. And, and honestly, I was concerned and I had every intention of, of having her shut down the angel ministry until all of this was over because all of them were, were high risk essentially. And I was concerned for their well being. And so she stops by my office and I'm, I'm expressing this to Joyce. And you know what Joyce says? She says, Cody, let me stop you right there. If I lose my life doing this, I will happily give it. In other words, I have offered my life to the Lord. I have offered my life to the Lord. And wherever he wants me to go, I'll go. Whoever he wants me to be, I'll be. Whatever he wants me to do, I'll do. She was the essence of loving one another, of teaching one another, and of going and living and being. Brothers and sisters, we need you to be that way. We need you to sacrifice yourself. We need you to lay down your life. We need you to give yourself, not, not just to some system in a church, not just some ideas about a pastor, but to the call of Christ on your life. This morning, will you step up to the plate? And pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.